This podcast is dedicated in loving memory and for the Eloi Nishmat of Feige Batrivka and Aaron and Sarah Kotler. May their memories be a blessing for us. Kabbalah and our present world crisis. Our world, both politically and culturally, is in turmoil. Our value systems are being turned upside down. Freedom of speech in the West is no longer guaranteed. Our economic systems serve only a few, with the majority suffering under huge burdens. And in more than one country, democracy itself and the freedom of the individual are under attack. Now actually, all this was true before, but now added to that is the coronavirus crisis with the lockdowns and the latest riots in the US and the world. We certainly need to ask our question, where are we heading to? Times of chaos are definitely uncomfortable for us, and we are the individuals who are destined to live through these ones. But such times also provide opportunities for us to reassess our values and to make new decisions in the directions that we, as individuals, as families, and as communities, want to go in. Our present political and economic systems are based on our basic nature. In order to ask the questions we need to ask about how and why these systems are no longer serving us, we first of all need to understand what our basic nature is. The wisdom of Kabbalah teaches us that our basic nature is the one of the desire to receive pleasure. All created beings share this nature. It is a nature embedded within us from the very thought of creation. Indeed, the great Kabbalist, Rabbi Yehuda Leif Ashlag, states clearly in his work, the Ptichal Chochmata Kabbalah, the opening of the wisdom of the Kabbalah, as follows. Our sages taught that the purpose of creation is that God wants to give pleasure to the created beings according to the gift of his ample hand, may the one be blessed. As a consequence, there was imprinted within the souls a will and a great desire to receive God's plenty. Both the bounty itself and the will to receive it come from the Creator and stem necessarily from the thought of creation. However, we distinguish them and that the bounty stems from God's essence, whereas the will to receive it is the root of all created beings. From this we can see that our basic nature consists of the will to receive pleasure, and it is that from the very beginning of our creation. It's from this very thought of creation that all creation unfolds. In fact, the creation takes place as two parallel processes. On the one hand, as the Hebrew says, Hu amaviyehi, God spoke and it was done. The moment the thought of creation arose, it was instantly finished. The creator not requiring process as we do. The Zohar says, at the time when the Holy Blessed One wanted to create the world, his will arose before him and portrayed all the future souls that were to be given subsequently to humankind. 
All of them were portrayed before him in the actual form that they would finally attain in the children of Adam, and he saw each and every one. In one sense, the creation is already finished in all its glorious perfection. All the souls and all their happenings came forth and were finished before the Creator in all their beauty and wholeness. This fact is a real and present cause for hope and trust in the future. Our destiny of reaching the wholeness and beauty of a civilization, which will be based on compassion and love, in conscious connection with the Creator, has inevitably to come about because it is in fact already here, even though we cannot in our normal conscious state access it. The Shabbat, the Sabbath, that we celebrate every week belongs to that finished state and partakes of its essence. The only question really is, when will such a transformed state, the one we hope for, be present to us in our everyday consciousness? And the answer to that question depends on the parallel process with which the creation unfolds. As a parallel process, the creation also consists of a gradual unfolding from the higher spiritual worlds, the higher consciousnesses, to the lower worlds, culminating in the creation of the human being. It is this second principle, the unfolding of creation, which is the concern of each human being. It's the process that we are participants in. Uncomfortable though such participation may feel to us, it has a high purpose, which is to give the human being the unsurpassed joy of becoming partners with God, co-creators, earning the joy that he wishes to give us rather than simply being passive receivers of his goodness. It's through this second process of the unfolding of creation from the higher worlds of consciousness to the lower worlds and our subsequent rectification of our basic nature which allows us once more to reascend the spiritual worlds but this time consciously. It's a process in which we as human beings take an active role in bringing about in reality and in full consciousness the sublime perfection that is already waiting and present in the Ein Sof, in the infinite. In order to carry out our role, the human being was created with two opposite parameters within each of us. Unlike all other created beings, each individual has within the capacity to align with either the framework of holiness or with the framework of evil. The framework of holiness is that aspect of ourselves and of our actions which are in accordance with those of God, just as he heals the sick, just as he provides with food, just as he clothes the naked, so we are obliged to act inconsistently with that. The framework of evil is when we act with our basic nature, simply wanting our own self-gratification without a care of anybody else. Within ourselves, we have representatives of both frameworks. The soul is the representative of the framework of holiness and the body the representative of the framework of evil. When I say the body, I don't mean just the physical body, not at all. The physical body is the least of it. It's much more the ego 
the physical, emotional and mental components of which all have desires to receive pleasure. Both the body aspect and the soul aspect originate in the thought of creation and are aspects of the will to receive, but they in fact travel down to us through very different pathways. The ego embodies the will to receive, whereas the soul embodies the will to give unconditionally. The will to receive pleasure, which forms our ego, which forms that basic part of our makeup, is necessary and important to us. It inspires us to grow, to inquire in all realms, whether physical, emotional, mental and spiritual. It leads us to open businesses, do research, build families. It is the tool with which we can receive all of God's goodness. However, when used in its primal state, in its original form, our will to receive pleasure causes us to separate from God instead of connecting us with him. This follows from an early event in the evolution of the worlds called the Tzimtzum, which ushered in the process of Tikkun, the rectification of creation. It is from this point on that we, as created beings, are in fact only allowed to use our will to receive for the sake of giving pleasure to our fellow or to the Creator if we wish to stay united with the Creator. This means that we need to change the direction with which we receive pleasure, no longer using our will only to pleasure ourselves, but our primary focus needs to be on the other, on our fellow or on the Creator himself. As we're born into the world, our ego body appears in its infancy. This ego body grows and develops its desire for self-gratification, finding ever more ways of enhancing our selfish love. It is this ego body in its untransformed modality which forms the basis of our present political and economic systems. They are founded on the desires for power, money, appreciation, desires for honour and recognition the power for knowledge. All of these are untransformed wills to receive for ourselves alone. And in the modern age, fueled by the networks of global communication, global money have become monsters controlling us. Although we are enticed by them, we become enslaved to them. They fail us because these desires in their untransformed state separate us from the Creator. Our basic nature, as we've seen, comes to us from the Creator. So we can certainly ask the question, why should its use separate us from the Creator? To answer this, we need to know that just as there are natural laws that govern reality, so there are also spiritual laws that also govern our reality. These laws are as important for our well-being as are the physical laws of gravity. Failure to keep the spiritual laws results in chaos, widespread poverty and destitution, ecological degradation, hunger, violence, murder and even war. The physical laws of nature are accepted by everybody because we can see them for ourselves. If you throw a ball into the air it comes down. As children we learn these laws experientially. Scientists can investigate further into physical laws using complex instruments of research. But qualitatively, there is no real difference in the discoveries of the child or of the scientist. They are all investigation within the physical realm. 
As children, we also learn more subtle laws, for example, laws of human behaviour. If you insult someone, he's liable to get angry with you, and so forth. These laws of the way things behave are clear and obvious to us because they form part of our physical experience. The spiritual worlds also function through laws which are, in fact, just as clear and just as important as the law of gravity is in the natural world. But these spiritual laws are harder for us to understand or to perceive because our experience of them is not always clear to us. We find it hard to see how they operate in practical ways and so we do not understand in advance what the consequences of our actions will, of necessity, be. One of the issues is, is because these laws do not operate instantly. What that means is that when we transgress, God has patience and doesn't instantly cause us to suffer the consequences, but waits for us to repent. So unless we make a specific effort to do so, it does not follow that we learn them by experience, nor do we instinctively understand how they function. Very often we transgress the spiritual laws, but because we don't experience an instant response, we tend to carry on making the same mistakes. When individuals' mistakes behave synergistically with each other, we get patterns of de detrimental behaviour in society as a whole, and then the evil that one individual can do becomes multiplied many times over. By looking at practical outcomes of actions and ideas, philosophers throughout the ages have tried to formulate these spiritual laws by looking at the consequences of the mistakes made by both the individual and by society and have tried to derive understandings that would help us progress in the future. This system of ethics derives its understandings by analysing the perceived cause of suffering in the world. But this way is slow and cumbersome. There is, however, another way, and that is through the Torah, the divine wisdom. This is the natural spiritual law that was given to the world directly by the Creator through the medium of the people of Israel. It came through the people of Israel who stood together at Mount Sinai and received the Torah, but its treasure and wisdom belong to all humanity. This is how Rabbi Ashlag describes these two methods, that of ethics and that of the Torah, in his seminal essay, Mantan Torah. Conscious and unconscious development. Know that there are two forces given to us from above that push us to climb up and ascend the rungs of the spiritual ladder until we reach the heavenly top that is our destination, namely our similarity of form with our Creator. May the one be blessed. Now, the first of these forces pushes us without our intent, which is to say without our personal choice. This force pushes us from behind, as for example, coronavirus. We've defined it as the way of suffering or the way of nature. From it stems the philosophy of moral conduct that is called ethics, which is based on experiential knowledge acquired by critical analysis of situations that arise in practice. This ethical law is in essence a summary of the damage that has become obvious to us and which is caused by the core of egoism within us. These experiences come to us, came to us seemingly by chance without our intending them or choosing them. However, they are sure in their purpose. 
because the character that evil takes becomes clearer to our senses. According to the measure that we recognise the damage that evil causes, we remove ourselves from it and can thus arrive at a higher rung on the ladder. The second force pulls us consciously, and that's through the power of our own choice. This force pulls us forward from ahead. This force is the path of Torah and mitzvot. When the, the mitzvot, the commands of the Torah, which we do only for the sake of giving benefit to the other. For through such practice of the mitzvot and the work of giving satisfaction to the Creator, we find that there develops within us, with marvellous rapidity, the same sense of recognition of the evil. We therefore profit in two ways. Firstly, we do not have to wait for the vicissitudes of life to push us from behind. For the incentive they give rise to is measured only by the amount of pain and destruction they cause us, which comes upon us because of our will to receive within us, which actually is the force of evil. But through the path of service to God, the same recognition of the evil within us develops, but without any prior suffering or destruction. On the contrary, through the pleasantness and refinement that we feel at the time of our pure service to God, which we do only in order to give satisfaction to the Creator, there develops within us a relative ability to recognize the baseness of the spark of light that we gain through selfish love, which actually hinder us on our journey because they distract us and prevent us receiving the refined taste of serving the one unconditionally. The gradual sense of the recognition of the evil within us increases and develops through the periods of delight and great tranquility that we receive periodically as a result of our service to God, from our experiencing the pleasantness and refinement that comes to us consequent on our affinity of form with our Creator. Secondly, we save time as this process functions with our intent and we have it within our ability to increase our practice of Torah and Mitzvot and so hurry up the time our healing takes as much as we wish. Indeed, the great body of wisdom that contains with it all the spiritual laws that we need is the Torah. As the Talmud states, I created the evil inclination, which we describe as the will to receive oneself alone. I created the Torah as its healing medicine. God did not create the human being with his will to receive himself alone as part of his creation and then leave us to stumble around trying to discover the spiritual laws through trial and error, a process which we've seen as costly in time and suffering. But he gave us the divine wisdom through the Torah. This is the body of laws that gives us sane and wise rules that redirect us so that we can realign our desires. We said earlier that the human being is composed not just of the ego body, but also of the soul. This is our godly nature. In general, we're not normally very cognizant of our soul. This is because we're not acting in a way that helps us align to it. However, the soul has a natural alignment with the Torah, this body of divinely given spiritual law and divine wisdom. As the Zohar teaches, the Torah, the Holy Blessed One and the soul are all one essence. 
we discover that the Torah is both a way and a destination. First of all, it is a way. When we keep the basic laws of the Torah, we naturally align with a divine purpose. We become more aware of the needs and desires of the soul, and this helps us restrain the egoistical side of our nature. We become more aligned with the real purpose of the human being's sojourn on this planet. We live lives that work better. Our relationships improve. Our happiness is more permanent. Our societies become less polarised and more just. We strive for economic equality and for preservation of the environment. We become cognizant of the divine origin of all human beings. Rabbi Ashag writes, It's known that the purpose of all our work in Torah Mitzvot is to come to Dvekut, unity with God. May he be blessed, according to the scripture. But surely, keep all this commandment that I am commanding you to do, to love the Lord your God in all his ways, and to be in Dvekut, unity with him. But what does Dvekut with God mean? How can we unite with God when the scripture affirms for the Lord your God is a consuming fire. The sages of the Talmud interpreted the injunction to unite with him as meaning unite with his virtues. Just as he is merciful and gracious, so you be merciful and gracious. What are God's virtues? Caught up as we are in the suffering brought about by our own unbridled use of the will to receive ourselves alone, Many of us find it hard to see God's goodness. Often it takes belief to think that God is good and does good and that he gives his goodness to us unconditionally. And although that is true, we need to begin by simply believing it. If we begin by thinking and acting as if we knew it were true, that God is good and does good and that we need to act in a similar way to others, we will soon discover experientially that indeed it is true. Only by setting aside our inbuilt egoism and focusing on giving unconditionally to each other and to God do we truly come to unity with him. And then these words of the second century sage Rabbi Meir will come as real to us as they were to him. It's actually one of my favourite pieces in Ethics of the Fathers. Chapter 6, verse 1. Rabbi Meir says, Whoever occupies himself with Torah for its own sake will merit many things. Not only that, but the whole world becomes worthwhile to him. He's called friend, beloved, lover of the one, a lover of all people, one who gives joy to God, one who gives joy to people. He's clothed in humility and in reverence of the Creator. He's fitted to be a tzaddik, a pious one, upright and faithful, keeping his fellow far from sin and bringing his fellow closer to the Creator. Others rejoice in his counsel and in his wisdom, in his understanding and his fortitude. As tis said, I have counsel and wisdom, I am understanding, I have fortitude. Sovereignty is given to him, governance and resource in judgment. The secrets of the Torah are revealed to him and he becomes like an overflowing spring, like a river that does not cease. He's modest and long-suffering, forgiving those who insult him, and he's great and exalted over all God's created beings. Let's ask a question. What would the world look like 
if its leaders conformed to that description friend beloved lover of the one lover of all people one who gives joy to god one who gives joy to people clothed in humility and in reverence of the creator a tzaddik a sage pious upright and faithful seems like an imaginable dream but it is not beyond possibility what does it depend on it does not depend on the politicians it depends on each and every one of us working to deal with our own consciousness if each one of us works to let go of our own self-gratification and instead places our focus on the reality and desires of the soul the god within each one of us in the functioning within our families within our own circles this actually acts to change the overall consciousness of society as a whole we've reached the situation we've reached because of the unbridled consumerism and materialism that's overtaken the whole of society but it starts with ourselves it starts in our homes Rabbi Ashlag writes, do not be surprised by the fact that an individual person through his or her deeds can cause an elevation or degradation of the whole world. There is an unalterable law that the macrocosm, the totality, and the microcosm, the individual, are as like to each other as two drops of water. The same procedures that occur with respect to the macrocosm occur with regard to the individual and vice versa. Furthermore, it's the individual components themselves which make up the macrocosm, and thus the macrocosm is only revealed through the manifestation of its individual components according to their measure and their quality. So certainly the act of a single person, according to his or her capacity, may lower or elevate humanity as a whole. At present, our education systems, our political and economic systems all put our basic nature first. But to change this around, base our systems on mutual giving in order to bring us into unity with the Creator is certainly within our power. More than that, the current events have surely shown that it is a stark necessity. If we ignore the rules of gravity and jump off a cliff, we endanger our lives. If we ignore the spiritual laws, we endanger ourselves and our communities equally. We have said that nature obliges the human species to live a societal life. That's clear. So we have to consider the laws of nature that we are obliged to keep, looking at how they apply to the life of the community. Rabbi Ashlag writes, In general, we find that we need to interact with the society in which we live from the perspective of only two laws. We may define these two laws as receiving and giving benefit. That is, every member of society must receive his needs from society, and he is also obliged to contribute to society through his work. If he doesn't obey these two fundamental rules, he'll definitely suffer the consequences. Regarding the law that nature obliges us to receive from society, we don't need to consider this aspect to any great extent because it's clear that failure to do so causes immediate harmful consequences. 
I can't grow my own food. I rely on the transport system for transport, so on and so forth. I need to receive from society. And therefore, nobody neglects this. But regarding the second rule, which is that of giving benefit to the society, the consequence of that neglect comes about in an indirect manner and is not immediately perceived. And thus, this rule is not kept properly, and humankind continues to simmer in the dreadful skillet of war, hunger and their consequences, from which we suffer even now. Rabbi Ashlag wrote this, I think he wrote this, in the about the 1940s, certainly no later than the 1950s. He could have written it yesterday. The most amazing thing is that nature acts like a seasoned judge, punishing us precisely according to our development. If we bear witness to the direct relationship that exists between humanity's development and the measure of affliction and suffering we undergo in order to attain our sustenance and ensure our existence. We have here in front of our eyes the basic for scientific evaluation Divine Providence has commanded us to fulfil the requirement of giving benefit to our fellow with all our might, such that none of us may lessen our work in bringing about the success and happiness of society. But so long as we are lazy and not fulfilling our role to the required extent, nature will not cease to inflict the consequences on us and wreak its vengeance on us. And we need to consider not only the blows that we receive in our own time, also those that hang as a drawn sword hang over us in the future. And the conclusion we're forced to come to is that nature will defeat us until ultimately we are compelled to unite to fulfil the mitzvot of the Creator in the measure that is asked of us. May God grant us the humility to listen, the willingness to learn and the wisdom to choose our new way wisely. Because make no mistake, Coronavirus is a wake-up call. As I said before, at the beginning of this talk, all the elements which coronavirus has brought into, into prominence were already there before, but we weren't paying attention. Questions about, is it an ethical thing? for genetic engineering to mess about with the DNA, with the RNA, the very process of creation. This should be a question. I'm not saying we shouldn't have technology, but its ethical side, the, ethical, the ethics should not be neglected. We saw the same thing happen with nuclear power. man's crazy race for knowledge without looking at ethical consequences brings society to the edge of destruction. We can no longer afford to keep the rules of the ego without keeping the rules of the soul. May God grant us the ability to listen.
This audio recording is brought to you from the Horus School, established by Yadita Cohen for the study of the Kabbalah as taught by Rabbi Hudelev Ashlag. Studies with Yadita Cohen are available through the Nahoas School online. Details at www.nahoaschool.com or www.nahoapress.com.